Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles individuals who are passionate about what they do for a living, about what organization they belong to, or simply passionate about the community they are a part of. Hello there and welcome. My name is Dave Cunningham. Voters in the U.S. go to the polls on November 3rd to elect a president. On this side of the border, we are being bombarded with news stories and commercials about the two candidates. The U.S. electoral and governing process is very much different from ours. Their current president has a much different personality from his predecessors and his current opponent. We have invited someone passionate about politics to help us get a handle on both issues. He is an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University, and his name is Jonathan Rose. Our conversation was recorded using Zoom on October 4th. So, Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. When I was putting together an idea for a show for the month of October, I was thinking that we should do something about U.S. politics and their election. And what I was looking for was getting someone like you to sit down with us and walk us through their system. And as you and I are sitting here recording this conversation, the U.S. president is in the hospital dealing with COVID-19. And uh, we'll talk about those issues. And there are other issues that we will talk about during the course of our conversation, not the least of which is the personality of this particular president, which is a lot different from others. But where I'd like to start is I've had conversations with friends who are Americans, and they're quite Hmm. surprised when they find out that Canadians are genuinely interested in or know a lot about their particular system. They're curious as to why. And I'm wondering if you've run into that in conversations you've had. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I think the reason why Canadians know so much about the American system has a lot to do with where we live. I mean, most of us live along that ribbon along the border, but also the media environment. I mean, if you think about what media products we consume and what we watch, uh, a lot of it is American. And I think that drives it as well. Um, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, famously said, uh, you know, living uh, beside the United States is like living, sleeping with an elephant. You feel every twitch and every itch. And uh, I think that's true. So our economy is very much dependent on the United States and our culture is uh, intertwined with the United States. So I think that's why we know more about them than they do us. Um, uh, I think it's in our interest. Mm -hmm. When we hear a lot of the coverage on American media about their election, I know some of it has to be confusing to a lot of us, particularly when we hear talk about the presidential election and this whole business of popular vote versus electoral college. Now, can you explain that college to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the details around the Electoral College are complicated, but the big picture is that the um, uh, at the time uh, when the country was founded, the founders were deeply ambivalent about democracy. And that ambivalence, I think, is evident even today. Um, the United States uh, engages in gerrymandering, or the changing of electoral districts like no other country, democratic country in the world. Um, 
Canadians are shocked when they find out that voters have to register um, in in states to to vote, um, and they require ID. Of course, in Canada, elections of Canada does it all, and we just show up at the polling place. So um, the the context of the election is different in the United States. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and um, the Electoral College reflects that ambivalence. So what it is, is that on November 4th, uh, American citizens will go to the poll and vote. And in fact, what's fascinating about this election is that normally people uh, who vote before amount to you know, a few hundred thousand, and I think we're already up to over a half million voters. So there's a huge interest in people voting beforehand has a lot to do with COVID, has a lot to do with the stakes, um, but it may surprise many of those voters, and in fact, Canadians, that their vote is less important than the Electoral College. So uh, the Electoral College is um, based on the um, number of congressional seats and the number of Senate seats in each state, and the winner of the popular vote in each state uh, uh, gets all the electoral college votes. So it's not a direct election. It's an indirect election by these so-called electors. And that happens in December. Uh, and why we care about this is that we're hearing a lot about swing states and that in the last election, you know, these large states like Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, Donald Trump won by a minor amount, you know, less than 1%. But they won, Donald Trump and the Republicans won all the electoral college votes. So in order to win, you need half of that. There's 538 electoral college votes. You need 270 to win. And states have different numbers, as I said, based on the um, congressional seats in the Senate. The, the effect of this is actually quite interesting because every state has two senators. So a tiny state like Idaho has two senators, huge state like Texas and New York and California have two senators. So what this does is it hugely overemphasizes right ways the rural states. And that's part of the reason why Trump is um, popular in the industrial, uh, pardon me, in the Midwest because that's where the electoral college votes are. That's not where the um, voters are. The voters are in large states. That probably explains why the presidential candidates up until recently have focused on those smaller swing states, as opposed to doing what you think they should do, which was to try to visit everybody in the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the reality of an American campaign is it's confined to a half dozen states. And those half, the, the, the other states, in many cases, are already predetermined. Um, California will be Democrat. New York will be Democrat. Um, and the, those so-called swing states are the ones where uh, the election is won or lost. I mean, famously, some of your listeners may remember, in 2000, when the election was decided by the state of Florida, um, and uh, the... Um, the, it had to be decided by the Supreme Court to count the ballots and determine which ballots were legitimate. 
because there was such a small minority of votes for the Republicans in that state that the Democrats and Al Gore um, were contesting that at the time. As we know, in the end, Gore uh, conceded defeat, uh, Bush won, but subsequently there, the reality is that there are more people who voted for Al Gore in Florida than George Bush. And he should, he, Gore, should have won that uh, state, in which case he should have been president. So um, these really intricate details have huge ramifications when you think about how they uh, affect the overall outcome of the election. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the states themselves control the election process as opposed to the federal government, which is different from what it is in Canada, correct? Yeah, and it is a patchwork of uh, policies. So we are hearing that in some states, they are uh, denying voters whose um, ID isn't exactly like what they have on their taxes. So if your name is spelled uh, with an accent aigu uh, and your license or something doesn't have that accent, they're denying uh, you the right to vote. In other places, um, they request um, uh, a, a, a ballot to be submitted, a request to be submitted beforehand. Um, so it's, it's very confusing for Canadians because, and I'm sure for Americans, because there is no one national policy. And again, the U.S. is unique among democracies in that way. When it comes to the governance of the country as a whole, and it's probably become a much bigger issue now that the current president is trying to have, is nominated and is trying to have appointed a new Supreme Court justice. So can you briefly explain the three branches of their government, the judicial, the legislative, and the and the executive branch? That's right. So, um, I mean, the big difference is the uh, the president, who is um, uh, the 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 chief of the head of government, sits outside of the legislature. So in Canada, we have this um, knowledge that our prime minister, the head of government, sits within the legislature, and as a result, the prime minister is questioned by opposition leaders on a daily basis through question period. Well, no such mechanism exists in the United States because the executive headed by the, uh, the president, uh, is independent of the legislature. And his cabinet uh, are also outside of the legislature. So that kind of accountability that we have in parliamentary systems don't exist. But Americans believe that's a virtue because it provides a check on, ver on the power of the executive. Um, that power is split. Uh, in Canada, we say it's fused in the legislature. In reality, the prime minister has uh, more power if he or she has a majority government because he or she can do what they want. In the United States, as is often the case, the president is from a, a party that doesn't control the legislature and has difficulty getting their legislation passed. So in the last couple of years of Obama's um, rule, uh, the, the uh, Republicans blocked virtually every piece of legislation. So it's very different. In Canada, of course, the prime minister requires the um, support of the uh, 
of the legislature in order to continue governing. That's not so in the U.S. What role does the Supreme Court play in governance in the U.S.? Um, the Supreme Court is a hugely important um, body uh, in all democracies. The Supreme Court is the independent arbiter of the powers of the state. Um, and what's different about the Canadian Supreme Court and the American one is the partisanship of the appointees. So in Canada, it's widely recognized that the caliber of appointees are excellent. The Supreme Court of Canada is renowned around the world for writing very clear and thoughtful and intelligent decisions. And the Supreme Court generally stays outside of the government's way. In other words, they don't engage in what's called judicial activism. They don't overturn the laws of government routinely. Uh, in the United States, the Supreme Court appointment, as we're seeing with uh, Judge Barrett, is highly partisan. Um, and the, um, the decisions uh, from those judges uh, are often dependent on who they're appointed. So uh, Judge Clarence Thomas, for example, has always voted on the right uh, wing side of issues. Uh, in the United States, the Supreme Court has also been, and I'll be said this might sound bizarre, but a radical force in American politics. Um, there's a case called Citizens United where um, there was an attempt to uh, control election expenditures. And the Supreme Court went beyond that and said that there can be no such limit on any expenditure made in the US uh, election. So what that means is the amount of money any candidate or uh, act, political action committee can spend in an election is unlimited. It's unheard of in any democracy. And I think if you're watching an American television station, you will no doubt recognize the fact that a lot of money is being spent on electioneering. Uh, if right now, because we are so close to the election in the States, there is so much money, so many commercials going back to back to back, promoting the various political candidates. And I've always wondered how much money was actually being spent during a campaign and how much better use that money could be put to uh, in well, other exactly. areas. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And it, it's, it's not just the parties, as you say, it's also these political action committees mm -hmm. that are funded by uh, interests who are not accountable um, and who support or target specific candidates. I mean, if you think of the National Rifle Association and their power in American politics, you realize that the power to make and decide who is elected is really in many ways beyond the voter. We are going to take a break in our conversation and play a song. And this is a song that you asked us to play today. So why don't you tell us who you chose and why? Sure. Um, you know, I, I thought about this and I'm a big Beatles fan. And I thought it might be kind of fun to do Revolution by the Beatles. But instead, I chose uh, Public Enemies Fight the Power. And I like it because I think this is really um, an election where voters of all political stripe need to fight the power. And I, I also think if I can be a bit cheeky, that many people might say that the uh, present occupant is a public enemy. And we're going to talk about that present occupant in a moment, but right now we're going to listen to the song by Public Enemy. 
Public Enemy with Fight the Power and the choice of our guest today, Jonathan Rose, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University. 
So let's talk about that present occupant and talk about the personality, because in, I guess, in a lot of people's minds, he is much different from most other presidents. Would you agree with that particular assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he campaigned on being an outsider and an outsider he is. I mean, he's never run for office, never held an elected office at all. Um, and while many people might say in order to run an economy and a, and a society as complex and big as the United States it requires some public service, he turned that and made that into a virtue. Um, so it's not just his personality, but it's the anti-government approach that he has taken and that he has continued through his governing. When I was speaking to those same American friends that I mentioned earlier on in the program, and I asked them specifically why they were going to vote for Donald Trump. And the response was because he is different, he's an outsider, and he is a successful businessman. Now, I would think that most people who do a little research would find that he, and I guess his taxes that came out uh, a little while ago tend to prove that he has not been as successful as maybe he wanted to be. And my question is, in your research, because I gather you've done a fair amount of work with communications and political advertising and that sort of stuff, and do you have a sense that the American voter is not necessarily paying that close attention to the news that comes out about these various people when they run? Yeah, well, that's the huge and interesting paradox of, you know, being a voter in the 21st century. We're surrounded by information, a tsunami of information, uh, but it's, uh, it's very difficult to uh, get precise and accurate information. Someone likened it to trying to drink water out of a fire hose. And just because we have sources of information doesn't mean we are better informed. And we know from studies in all democracies that the median voter, the average voter, um, uh, isn't interested and doesn't know a lot about the political system, but uses these shorthand cues. And the shorthand cue that Donald Trump has been really effective in mobilizing is that he is a successful businessman and that he is an outsider. And I think for many people, as you've said, even though there are facts that prove the, the opposite, uh, that uh, narrative is a powerful one and is enough for them to um, base their decision in the ballot box. I heard a description on the television this morning when I was watching, and a, a particular analyst was saying that a fellow who is known in conservative circles in the States, who has a Facebook page, has had 61 million hits to his Facebook page in the past 30 days leading up to this election which is far more than the New York Times or the Washington Post or the three or four major US TV networks, which seems to suggest that's where people are getting their information now is from social media rather than the so-called um, independent trusted journalists that a lot of people would have gotten their information from in the past. Fair statement? Yeah, that's totally a fair statement. Um, and of course, the problem is, is that information asymmetry is also age-based. So younger folk tend to find most of their information from social media and the internet. I, I mean, I'm kind of shocked that students don't read physical newspapers anymore. <laughs> they read it online. 
Um, and of course, when it's online, it's gated and you only read part of the story. But it's also that um, uh, older folk tend to rely on traditional media more. And in an election in particular, information is king. So if you're not getting the right information, as we saw in the last election, um, it really affects uh, the basis from which you make your decision. And all democracies are predicated on providing appropriate and accurate information for the voter. And if you don't have it, um, it's difficult to make a proper decision. In the past, you've taught a course uh, on campus to students uh, focusing on Donald Trump in particular. And I'd like to get some sense as to your opinion on what particular talents to describe how he is communicating to the public. Now, a lot of people would suggest it's his TV background on The Apprentice that has helped him quite a bit in terms of defining what he thinks he needs to do to get his points across. And uh, lay it out for me, your particular uh, take on just how he has been as successful as he has in getting to where he is now. Well, I mean, he is truly an iconoclast. I mean, he breaks down traditional barriers in every sense of the word, both in terms of his career, in terms of his personality, in terms of his approach to governing, in terms of his dealings with other people. And as we saw in the presidential debate, in terms of how he engages in thoughtful discussion, which is what debates are supposed to be about. So Trump has understood that it's much more important to get what is known as earned media. It's much more important to have media write about you, to be the center stage. Any press is good press. And I think he has parlayed that throughout his career. Um, so when people are criticizing him, I don't think Trump minds because it still means he's dominating the headlines. Uh, it must be really tough for Donald, Donald Trump to be not front and center uh, on our TV screens when he's been ill. Uh, and I think the media have also been complicit in this because they followed and reporting on all of these things that frankly are often not newsworthy. So uh, to answer your question, uh, what's the success of Donald Trump's communication? I think he has been successful because uh, as a showman on The Apprentice, he has understood the power of a great show. And um, he's given us a, a, a show, which is, as I said, dramatically overturned traditional mores about how we understand politics. And um, that legacy will live forever, frankly. You mentioned before that he is in hospital and he can't communicate the same way as he has been or that he would want to, although he has gotten out a couple of videos while he has been in the hospital. Uh, I guess what I'd like to ask with respect to that is the frustration that some media people have at the moment in not getting complete and accurate information about his health and where he sits with respect to his condition. And uh, you hear some people suggest that it is part of the democracy set up in the States to, uh, to know exactly what's going on with the commander in chief. And how do you uh, saw that off against his need for personal privacy as it relates to his health? I mean, does he throw his personal uh, concerns out the window when he becomes president? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, in the United States, more so than in Canada, the president is not just the head of government, but is really the the king or the queen, uh, if we ever get a female president. Um, 
but so they have a different, Americans have a different relationship to their president than we do our prime minister. Um, but what's interesting about his illness is that it appears in a middle of a campaign, the end of a campaign. And um, that really changes the dynamic. So a campaign is all about controlling information. And the illness of a president is about making information transparent. And those two things uh, collide, as we're seeing. So the media want uh, to know what's going on, and the campaign wants to keep it a secret. Um, and that's what we're witnessing now with that battle. Uh, I, I, I think we are already seeing the spin that the White House is providing. Um, and uh, we are seeing that um, uh, the media are, uh, for lack of, for better or worse, following along with that. I, I guess they don't have much of an option. A couple of issues I'd like to run by you before we run out of time on the program today. One of them is the perception that the current president would rather spend more time talking to uh, world leaders who would be construed as being, I guess, dictators. Well, dictators is pretty strong a word, but I think it describes the individuals, people like Erdogan and Turkey and Putin and Russia and the president of China, rather than allies. Is that a fair assessment? Like, what is it about that? Is it because he likes the way they run their their governments? Well, I mean, if you do a kind of, you know, reasonable, thoughtful analysis of who Donald Trump is and what he's in favor of, he he has authoritarian tendencies. I don't think that's great news. Uh, and it's not a surprise that he likes authoritarian leaders, the ones that you've mentioned. I think he would love to see uh, him having that kind of power and secretly wishes he could. But unfortunately, democracies, of course, aren't like that. There are appropriately checks and balances on his power. And that gets in the way of his, I think, innate natural tendencies. The other is the coronavirus. When we sit and look at the way the Americans are attempting to deal with that particular issue versus the way that our governments, both federal and provincial and territorial have, there's a big difference. And I get the sense that there has not been as much flow of cash from the government's to the people who need the money at this particular point in their lives in the States as there has been in Canada. Is it a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I think what it reflects in the United States, and this is a topic for a whole other show, is the difference in federalism. And federalism is the division, the difference in the powers between the national government and the subnational government, the states and the United States, the provinces here. So um, the um, provinces here have enormous power to spend. And um, that has, we've seen that through the way in which the coronavirus has been addressed. Healthcare, for example, is a provincial responsibility. But the bigger issue around coronavirus is the kind of anti-science approach that Trump has had with respect to it. And I think the chickens are coming home to roost. Uh, I mean, I think he is now realizing as he's getting the very best healthcare in the world at Walter Reed, that there is something to the uh, to science and responding to an illness through medical intervention. What a surprise. The other thing that I thought I would uh, throw at you is the Americans, when they are talking about socialism, to me, socialism represents the government stepping in and helping out where private enterprise can't. I mean, that's a very general description. 
and I don't claim to have analyzed it in any great detail, but there are agencies like that already in the States that are doing that sort of thing. But there seems to be a much more serious objection to increasing the amount of that that goes goes around in the States. And I'm wondering if you can explain uh, the Americans' attitude towards that kind of thing. Well, I mean, you know, the American motto is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think those ideals uh, with the emphasis on the individual is kind of antithetical to socialism and the and the collective good or the principle of solidarity. Um, if you believe in solidarity, you believe in helping those who are less fortunate. If you believe in individuals, individualism, you believe in everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So this antithesis to socialism is kind of ingrained in their political culture. Um, but it is also being embedded in their heads, you know, beginning with the McCarthy hearings, where they equated socialism with communism. Mm-hmm. And it's shocking to hear, you know, people still objecting to that when we have a leader like Bernie Sanders, who calls himself, who is a democratic socialist, retrieving that word. And if we get a Biden president, what will be interesting will will be to see how that is retrieved and uh, recovered as a concept and a political value in American life. Because as you say, it exists there. They just don't want to acknowledge it. When you talk about what happens if somebody like Biden gets elected as president and what kind of Uh, direction that they will take after that, that sort of becomes a perfect lead in to the wrap up, which is after the election, you and I should probably sit down and review what happened in the election and see where you think the country is going to go after whoever gets elected president in November. I'll be happy to do that. And it might be sometime after November that we do that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we may not know the results until well after November. Yeah, there could be weeks or even perhaps months, hopefully not months before we know, but maybe after January 20th, we can probably be safe that we can get together. Jonathan, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat about this. It's been uh, very interesting, and I look forward to you and I sitting down and, and taking another look at this after the election. Thanks for the opportunity to chat, Dave. Good talking. Our thanks once again to our guest in this episode, Jonathan Rose, an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at Queen's University. Comments and suggestions can be directed to our Facebook page called simply The Kingstonian, the podcast. Theme music for the program is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. This podcast is produced through CFRC Radio at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, situated on the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. My name is Dave Cunningham. Join us next time for the Kingstonian, the podcast. Thank you for listening.